In 1597, the Edinburgh Parliament passed an act to enable the foundation of three new towns in the north and west of Scotland. Clan society was entirely rural and might be literally civilized if towns could be planted in the midst of all that barbarity. How Lowland Scots saw the lands of the clans is unblushingly clear in the name of the company created to found the town in the Hebrides, the gentlemen adventurers for the conquering of the Isle of Lewis. In the winter of 1597-98, they sailed into Stornoway Harbor, and exactly in the manner of those who colonized the eastern coast of North America, they dug a ditch around their new settlement and built a stockade. And just as in Virginia and the other colonies, the indigenous inhabitants took exception. Chieftain Neil McLeod led his clansmen in attacks on the Stornoway stockade and burned the settlement at least two times. Alistair Moffat, The Highland Clans. Welcome to the campfire as we settle in to explore the history of the Highland Scots as a frontier people. The Highland line that divides the Highlands from the Lowlands in Scotland is a, is a geographical fault line that runs roughly from Arran on the southwest coast, north-northeast to Stonehaven on the east coast. And north and west of that line, the country is mountainous and rugged and, and studded with lakes or, or properly locks. The west coast is broken up into a, a proliferation of islands. Culturally, the line demarks a boundary too. The lowland and highland cultures began to diverge significantly in the Middle Ages, and lowlanders abandoned Scottish Gaelic, which persisted in the highlands. And by the, uh, by the 14th century, the, the chronicler John of Fordun described a country of two halves. The lowlanders were generally considered to be law-abiding, peaceful, industrious, solid citizens. And this is old John speaking here. The Highlanders of, and the people of the islands, on the other hand, are a savage and untamed nation, rude and independent, given to rapine, ease-loving, of a docile and warm disposition, comely in person but unsightly in dress, hostile to the English people and language, and owing to diversity of speech even to their own nation, and exceedingly cruel. Now that description held true up to the point where we pick up the story, as Colin Calloway says, the distinction held in the 18th century. The lowlands were regarded as relatively civilized. The highlands were regarded by Englishmen, lowland Scots, and foreign travelers as a separate country, a land in savagery in need of civilization. Now, some of you who listen to my podcast on Kit Carson and Kit Carson's people may be thinking of the, the Ulster Scots and, and are thinking, now, wait a minute, what about the Border Reavers? And you're right. So while the lowlands may have been considered more settled and law-abiding, the borderland between Britain and Scotland was wild and violent up through the 16th century. And uh, the Border Reavers were similar to the Highlanders in their raiding, feuding, and, and they recognized no other law than that of their kin and, and clan. So that anomaly acknowledged what distinguishes the Highlander culture. Well, the wildness persisted for a longer period of time, like like we just said. The the uh, when we pick up this story in the 17th and 18th century, the Highlands were still regarded as uncivilized. So the, the Highlander culture was Gaelic speaking, the the old language, whereas the the Lowland Scots had had uh, created or 
migrated to a, a form of, of English, um, still kind of a distinct dialect, but uh, not a separate language. Old faith Catholicism was more prevalent in the Highlands, though it was not universal. Uh, the clan system, obviously, is, makes the, the Highlands distinct. Clan means the children of, and that sense of familial loyalty as a two-way street was, was a real thing. It, uh, it diminished as uh, Scotland moved into the, to the modern period, but in the Highlands, that relationship of, of clan chief to his, uh, his clan members was a real thing up until the, uh, the late 18th century. Chieftainship didn't necessarily pass to the eldest son, although, again, as things moved into the modern era, that, that became more common. Uh, the relationship was much less deferential and subservient than, than medieval feudalism. Um, when the Normans conquered England in 1066 and they moved north uh, through the, the subsequent centuries, Norman feudalism did creep in and somewhat changed the old clan system. But by and large, the Norman lords kind of went native and adapted to the, the older clan system. So the, the members of the clan were much less deferential to their, to their lord than, um, or laird in this case, than they were under uh, traditional medieval feudalism. The obligations ran both ways. They lived a very vigorous outdoor life. The harsh climate made for very tough winters, and it was difficult to lay in enough surplus. So the Indians, uh, or rather the, the Highlanders, much like um, Native American Indians, were no strangers to want and starving times. But there were real glories to the, to the lives uh, that they led as well. W.H. Murray describes the activity of, of youth in the Highlands in the 17th century, and, uh, you know, most young men would, uh, would love to grow up this way. The opportunities for summer recreation abounded. The young swam in the locks in the deep pools of guile water, for the hot summers encouraged it, and all knew this was a skill they must get for crossing bridgeless rivers. They fished with hazel rods, guttled for trout under the stones and banks of guile water where the clear pools were shaded by a long stretch of old studded alders. Learned to row the smaller burlins and to sail the bigger when the elders had time. They played unorganized games, football, which they enjoyed all the more since the Privy Council over the last two centuries had decreed and ordained that football shall be utterly crit down and not used because it led to riot. Um, Shinty played with wooden clubs and a wounded ball, uh, wooden ball, a game which the Scots had brought from Ireland in the third century. And horse racing after harvest, riding bareback and barefoot with grass bridles and whips. All the year long, at any hour of the day, they practiced single stick in preparation for the broadsword, and at all seasons, they reveled in the evening Kayleys. Uh, Kaylee is a evening of music and storytelling, and uh, that's a, a Gaelic word, and uh, Marilyn and I named our daughter Kaylee in honor of that tradition. Tough as that living was, it was uh, that, that's a pretty glorious way to grow up, um, to my way of thinking. The Highland culture was a, a martial raiding culture. Men went armed. Uh, most carried a broadsword and a targe, which is a, a small round shield, sort of like a buckler if you're familiar with, uh, 
with that type of shield. Uh, they also carried a dirk and a bow or a musket, depending on, on the time period and, and the level of their, of their wealth. Uh, there's a debate over the proper use of the term claymore, whether that's confined to their big two-handed sword or if it also applies to that classic basket-hilted uh, broadsword that is characteristic of the Scottish Highlanders. I'm not uh, going to get into that debate because I'm not qualified to, to really have a, a, a definitive opinion. I've seen it both ways. But that basket-hilted broadsword is kind of the classic Scottish Highlander weapon. They also uh, prized distinctive steel-bodied flintlock pistols, and uh, which you can, you can find pictures of those online. They're, they're bodies entirely of steel, no wood, and uh, no trigger guard. They're, they're very unique pistols. And of course, the muskets and the pistols were expensive, and they were the arms of the, the leading men of the clans and their retainers. And uh, even all the way up to the, the Jacobite, the final Jacobite uprising in 1745, not all of the Highlander troops were armed with muskets, and some of those were, were armed with, uh, with muskets that were 80 years old. Cattle reaving or cattle lifting was a culturally honorable way of life. Um, it wasn't considered theft. Theft was was looked down upon, um, as it is in many tribal cultures. But but lifting cattle was not considered theft. Uh, much like the Plains Indians stealing horses, it was considered a uh, honorable occupation. Uh, quoting Colin Calloway's wonderful book, uh, White People, Indians, and Highlanders. Again, like intertribal conflicts in North America, internecine feuding in the highlands and western islands involved fighting for honor and revenge, as well as raiding and jostling for power. Clans waged age-old feuds. They raided, killed, and on occasion massacred each other, and clan bards commemorated the carnage in song and story. The raiding was more or less a constant, but occasionally the clan feuds would erupt into full-scale battles. The Battle of the Field of Shirts took place in the Great Glen of Scotland, which is a 62-mile glen that runs diagonally southwest to northeast across the middle of the highlands, and it took place in 1544. Clan Fraser of Lovett and Clan MacDonald of Clan Ranald duked it out over the MacDonald chieftainship succession on a hot summer's day, starting with an archery duel followed by a melee that left hundreds of clansmen dead on both sides. Clan Ranald could claim the victory since Hugh Fraser and other leading Fraser men were slain in the battle, but it was a slaughter all around, and hardly anybody walked away from the fray. And it was that sort of, of level of, of barbarism or, or savagery, as, uh, as it was depicted, that uh, made the Lowland Scots and the English feel that the Highlanders needed to be reined in and and brought to civilization when James the 6th of Scotland who would become he would become James the 1st of England took the throne he tried to rein in the independent power of the clan chiefs Calloway again clan chiefs captured by deceit were compelled to sign the statutes of Iona in 1609 which limited their military retinues restricted the carrying of firearms and suppressed the bards who celebrated and perpetuated the Gaelic warrior culture. 
Now, those of you who are familiar with frontier history will recognize that kind of action, whether it's in North America trying to to tame the uh, quote-unquote hostile Indians, or in New Zealand with the Maori, or in Southern Africa with the Zulu and the, the Matabili. This kind of pattern happened over and over and over again. And, uh, you know, interestingly enough, the, the state power that, that sought to suppress this, this barbarism brought to bear a very high level of violence in order to do so. As, as Calloway says, colonizers portrayed tribal worlds as inherently violent, but colonialism brought new kinds and new levels of violence. Colonizers fueled existing conflicts and employed tactics just as barbaric as those of the people they professed to be civilizing, sometimes more so. The Crown issued commissions of fire and sword, which rendered pro-government clans immune from legal sanction. Clans accustomed to raiding and feuding now faced more sustained forms of aggression. So what happened in, in Scotland in the 17th and 18th century is really just the classic strategy of colonial power seeking to control the wild and the free. You restrict their access to the means of defense and resistance, their firearms, and then you suppress their heroic stories. Um, In Scotland, the government set clan against clan. The Campbell Dukes of Argyle became the strong right arm of the crown, and they gained land and political influence and economic leverage and prestige through harrying and suppressing rebellious or outlawed clans. And they gained a lasting black mark against their name in the 1692 massacre of Glencoe. This was an infamous incident that uh, kind of came to prominence again in in recent years uh, when the fantasy writer George R.R. Martin, who wrote uh, the books that became the HBO series Game of Thrones, mined it for his famous uh, episode called the the Red Wedding, where the uh, the Stark family guests were massacred at a wedding when they were under the hospitality of another family. Um, that's kind of the 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 way that the Glencoe massacre has been portrayed that the Campbells massacred the McDonald's um, as part of an extension of a, of a clan feud. But in reality, the, uh, the episode was uh, one of, of state terrorism, essentially. The, uh, the government had decided to make an example of a small clan that had a lot of enemies as a way of cowing the others. By 1692, the Catholic James II and the Stuarts had been kicked out of England, chased off the throne in the Glorious Revolution, and were replaced by James's Protestant um, daughter Mary and her husband, the Dutch Prince of Orange, William. And William made a uh, proclamation that uh, the Highland clan chiefs would have to come in and uh, sign an oath of loyalty to him, to King William. And uh, students of the Great Sioux War of 1876 will recognize the similarities. The edict went out in the wintertime when it was very difficult for 
for anyone to travel any great distance and made it almost impossible that the McDonald's could comply, um, which is very similar to the demand that the the last of the Lakota holdouts come into the reservation or be declared hostile. Uh, the government didn't really want them to come in. They wanted the opportunity to declare them hostile and make an example out of them. So when the McDonald's of Glencoe failed to come in to sign the oath of loyalty, or for the chieftain to sign the oath of loyalty to King William, a contingent of redcoat soldiers marched out and were billeted amongst the McDonald's in the Glen. Now, they were commanded by a Robert Campbell, and there were some Campbell clansmen amongst the, uh, the soldiers, but uh, it was a contingent of, of about 128 men, and uh, the Campbells did not make up the majority of those soldiers. And the McDonald's took them in, and uh, for 12 days they had a, a pretty nice time. It was a kind of a rolling party. They gambled and drank and told stories by the fire. They uh, practiced archery and played shinty and, and uh, tossed the caber, which is a staple of the Highland Games to this day. But uh, on February 12th, Robert Campbell received his orders, and they were shocking and terrible. You are hereby ordered to fall upon the rebels, the McDonald's of Glencoe, and put all to the sword under 70. You are to have a special care that the old fox and his sons do on no account escape. You are to secure all the avenues that no man escape. This you are to put in execution at five of the clock precisely, and by that time, or very shortly after it, I'll strive to be at you with a stronger party. If I do not come to you at five, you are not to tarry for me, but to fall on. This is by the king's special command for the good of the country that these miscreants be cut off, root and branch. See that this be put in execution without feud or favor, else you may expect to be dealt with as one not true to king nor government, nor a man fit to carry commission in the king's service. Expecting you will not fail in the fulfilling hereof, as you love yourself, I subscribe these with my hand at Balaklulish. Robert Duncanson, 12th February, 1692. It's truly chilling, and it's truly horrifying. Graham McTavish writes in the book Clanlands, Now imagine Campbell reading those orders. Did he know what was coming? Did his men? I doubt even they could have imagined such an order. If he followed the order, he would be breaking that most inviolable code of honor, that of Highland hospitality. You see, it was fine to lay an ambush and kill a Highlander from a tree, or thieve from him, or burn hundreds of them in the cave. See the McLeod and MacDonald feud. But definitely do not have dinner with him, and then kill him. There's plenty of evidence that some of the soldiers and officers, including some Campbells, just couldn't do it. Um, there's evidence that, that they may have given hints to the, Mac, uh, the McDonald's that something was about to happen something terrible um, it's there's also evidence that uh, that some of the the soldiers literally looked the other way while uh, while McDonald's ran off into the snow and into the hills seeking refuge had not some of the uh, the soldiers 
felt a pang of, of guilty conscience uh, over attacking people who'd showed them hospitality, the, the slaughter would have been much worse. It was bad enough as it was. Um, 38 members of the clan, including the clan chieftain, were, were killed. And uh, many others fled into the hills, as I mentioned, um, but it was, it was February. It was February 13th. Ironically, uh, I'm recording this on a February 13th um, on a very snowy day. And the refugees that fled out into the, the cold and the snow of the hills around uh, the Glen were, many of them suffered terribly and, and many of them died. So this was a, a terrible incident, but uh, uh, it wasn't really the body count that made it uh, such a, a black day. Um, you know, certainly there had been worse slaughters in Highland history. What made this really distinctive is the the murder of people who had had given these soldiers hospitality, and it really marks not so much the uh, the clan feud between the Campbells and the McDonalds but the extent to which the government of, of Scotland and England uh, were willing to go in order to, uh, to suppress the free clans. From this period onward, the Highland clans were caught up in the intrigue of the effort to restore the Stuarts to the throne. Um, Again, they'd been run out in the Glorious Revolution, and uh, William of Orange had become king. And from about 1690 on up through the middle of the 18th century, there were continual plots to restore the Stuart dynasty to the throne. And it's often thought of as a, as a Scottish thing, but uh, there were, were plenty of English Jacobites, as they were known, uh, which comes from the Latin for James, and uh, many in Ireland as well. And uh, the the Jacobite movement created every bit as much intrigue as as the Cold War. Dealing with the Jacobites was a central part of British policy and diplomacy for the better part of of. 60 years or so. Romance would lead us to believe that the Highlanders were, were Jacobites and the Lowlanders and the English supported the Williamites and then later the, uh, the German Hanoverian kings. Uh, that's the, the Georges, King George I, II, and Third. Um, that is a gross oversimplification to say the least. The Jacobite risings, which uh, did mostly occur in, in Scotland and out of the Highlands, were civil wars. Some clans supported the government, some rebelled as Jacobites, and some clans and, and even families were split in their allegiances. And like I said, there was plenty of, of low, uh, lowland and, and English Jacobites as well. It's a knot that really resists untangling, but one thing's for certain, the outcome of the final great Jacobite uprising in 1745 and 46 marked the doom of the Highland clans. I'd like to take a momentary side trip here and offer a tip of the hat to Diana Gabaldon and her Outlander novels. The novels which first appeared in 1991 are impossible to categorize. Um, 
they're a whole bunch of things at once. Romance, time travel, science fiction, historical fiction. The, the, the first one, Outlander, is set in the run-up to, and then, uh, and then the saga continues with the dark aftermath of the 1746 Battle of Culloden. And they've been wildly popular for the past, what, 30-some-odd years. My brother John and his wife, Roxanne, read them early on, and they made a trip to the Highlands because of the books, specifically because of the books. And uh, countless others have done that as well. And even more since the books were adapted into a hit cable TV series on stars, which uh, my family greatly enjoys. I've read three of the of the books. Um, they're huge, uh, immersive novels, and uh, and they really you know you have to you have to have have time and space to to really get into them to read them. So I I haven't read past uh, the third novel, which is called Voyager, but. Uh, this phenomenon of, of tourists going to the highlands because of the books and the TV show is uh, called the Outlander effect or the Gabaldon effect. And I kid you not, the Out- Outlander tourism has pumped untold millions of dollars into the Scottish economy. I mean, just having a, a TV series shot somewhere infuses millions into an economy. I don't remember what the actual number is, but it's tremendous. And at any rate, it, it her books and, and the TV series have sort of popularized this story and the story of the uh, of the Highland Scots. And diving into that Outlander universe is a very enjoyable way to soak up the history. And uh, and my my clan recommends it unreservedly. So. Culloden and the Doom of the Clans. The final Jacobite uprising was led by a 25-year-old 20, uh, Charles Edward Stewart, who's um, often called Bonnie Prince Charlie because he was a, a good-looking young man and the, the lasses appreciated him. The Jacobite uprisings, the reason that they started in, in Scotland was generally that the Stuarts were a Scottish line. They had been the kings of Scotland before James became the king of of England and of Scotland after Elizabeth I died. So Scotland was sort of a a natural homeland and and hotbed for Jacobitism. But again, it wasn't confined there, and uh, the Stuarts didn't simply want to become kings of Scotland again. They wanted to go back to their their throne in London as well. And uh, there were a number of, of Jacobite uprisings. The, the final one gets gets most of the press because because it was the, the final one. Also it was the, the largest one and perhaps the one that came the closest to success. It started pretty inauspiciously with only a few clansmen showing up when when Charles Stuart landed on the west coast of Scotland. Um, he was supposed to land with, with French support, but, uh, but that didn't happen. And, and so he landed with a very small retinue and only a few people showed up to, uh, to support him. But, uh, the Bonnie Prince was a confident young man and, and believed that, that, uh, he was operating under, uh, 
the destiny of, of God's will. And uh, so he, he pressed on, and the movement gathered momentum. More clansmen came in to, uh, to his standard, and uh, initially they piled up victories. Um, most impressively, they smashed an, an English army at Preston Pans when the Jacobite force led by a canny local, flanked the British with a march through a, a marshy ground, and they came screaming out of the fog onto the flank and the encampment of this this English force and, and caught them completely by surprise, terrified them, and uh, slaughtered them in numbers and captured many. So after the initial successes... The Jacobite army marched south into England, and uh, because, as I say, the, the the Bonnie Prince wanted to restore his family not only to the throne of Scotland but to England as well, and uh, they got pretty far into uh, into England before they they ran into into trouble. Um, there was panic in London; the stock exchange completely freaked out. Uh, it, it looked like there was a, a possibility of uh, of a Stuart, a second Stuart restoration, but it didn't happen. And uh, one of the key reasons for it was was bad intel, or actually, more accurately, really good disinformation. A Jacobite scout who was actually a spy for King George informed the Jacobite command that a well-armed 9,000-man force lay athwart their road to London. And the Jacobite force, that would have outnumbered them significantly and uh, discouraged and, and undersupplied the, the war council, which was, was quite cautious that actually uh, there had been a very narrow uh, uh, vote to, to actually move into England. The War Council, uh, many of them had wanted to just stay in Scotland and, and act on the defensive. So the War Council was very cautious. They got this, this intelligence that a, a large force was between them and London, and they persuaded a very reluctant Prince Charles to retreat back to Scotland. No such army existed. Um, their way wasn't exactly clear to London, but they, they could have, have gotten there. Um, and history would have been very, very different if they had. But they turned around, and they headed back to Scotland, and by springtime, the Jacobite army was falling apart. Um, the, the Klansmen were, were not full-time soldiers. They were farmers. Uh, they were levies out of, of an agricultural and cattle-rearing uh, culture and society, and they needed to get the crops uh, planted and and get the cattle to market, and um, you know they did they just couldn't sustain an indefinite campaign, and uh, so the army was falling apart. Many returned home, and others had dispersed to find food. They were were very very short of supplies, and King George the Second's son, the Duke of Cumberland put together a well-trained and, and disciplined British force and marched them north. So now there really was an army um, to oppose the Jacobites. And, uh, and the Duke of Cumberland marched them north and uh, 
he was a very disciplined man, and he disciplined his his troops, and he he created a particular tactical drill that uh, that would pay off. The Highlanders' main tactic was the Highland Charge, which had worked great at, at Preston Pans. Um, as I'd mentioned earlier, not everyone was armed with firearms, with muskets, um, and uh, even those that, that were, you had basically one shot and then a 30-second or so interval to reload the muskets. So the Highland Charge was based on the idea that you would fire one volley, maybe two, discard the firearms, and charge in with the with the broadsword and uh, and carry everything before you. And uh, it, it worked pretty well because the uh, it was terrifying to undisciplined troops. But the Duke of Cumberland drilled his men assiduously, and uh, he kind of had a little tactical innovation wherein he trained his troops not to stab with the bayonet at the man directly in front of them, which uh, would likely hit their, their small shield, the targe that we talked about, but to stab to their right as the Highlanders came in with their swords raised so that they would stab under their right armpit. And, of course, that required a lot of trust because you were trusting somebody to take care of the, the guy that was right in front of you. But uh, Cumberland drilled his men persistently on this, and by the time they confronted the Jacobites at Culloden Moor in April of 1746, um, they were ready. They also had uh, a fairly substantial uh, contingent of field artillery, which would also play a significant role. It's not really certain why Prince Charlie um, decided to fight at Culloden Moor. It wasn't very good ground. It was uh, some of it was was quite boggy. Um, he might have have pulled back and dispersed and engaged in guerrilla warfare um, for reasons that probably have more to do with his personality than, than with any um, strategic or, mil- or tactical military decision. He decided to gamble it all on an all-out battle with, uh, with Cumberland's force. Now, you know, in, in retrospect, because it ended in disaster, it seems like a stupid... Stupid move, but you got to bear in mind that that uh, almost uh, all of the fights that uh, that Prince Charlie had had with British forces had had ended in his victory. So he had reasons to be confident, uh, but it didn't play out. So uh, they confronted the the British at Culloden Moor, and on this bad boggy ground, they didn't have the advantage of surprise like they did at Preston Pans. And uh, the Klansmen charged. They uh, they fired their their muskets and pistols probably at longer range than uh, than was effective, and their charge was uh, was slowed by the boggy ground. So they they charged in, and Cumberland's artillery opened up on them and uh, cut a lot of them down when they hit the British lines. Cumberland's tactic of of having his his troops. Uh, thrust their bayonets to the right was effective, and uh, the Highland Charge faltered on this disciplined line of British troops and then broke 
and that was was all she wrote. And uh, it was a disaster. There was uh, quite a large slaughter of the Klansmen. The uh, the casualty figures break down like this. The government troops, the British troops under the Duke of Cumberland, which included uh, n- numerous Klansmen, um, including Campbell's again, um, took 300 dead and uh, killed between 1,500 and 2,000 Jacobite clansmen. They also took um, an estimated 300 and some odd prisoners as well, some of whom were later executed. The aftermath was, I mean, the battle was obviously a, a, a terrible defeat and a disaster. Prince Charlie escaped, and he would eventually escape to Europe. But the battle itself was was not the true disaster. It's what came after. The Duke of Cumberland harried the rebel clansmen mercilessly, and the law prescribed Highland dress, the bagpipes, the keeping of bearing arms. Men were hunted down in the glens and executed as traitors, and or some were captured and transported to the uh, North American colonies. Um, and for some of them that were sent to the Sugar Islands in the Caribbean, that was a death sentence as well. But that prescription against the wearing of, of Highland garb and the war pipes and, and, and this very strict prescription on keeping and bearing arms really uh, broke the, the clans as a military force. And, and, you know, the term cultural genocide gets thrown around quite a lot, but, um, and, and sometimes not appropriately, and I hesitate to use it, but in this case, I think it, it's apt. They were trying to eradicate Highland culture. We'll see as we go forward that that, that didn't really succeed, that the culture um, remained more robust and persistent, as, as is often the case in situations like this, remain more robust than, than it might have at first appeared. But the old clan system and the warrior culture of the Highlands would never rise again. Culloden was the final, the last battle fought on British soil. So the Scottish Highland frontier was finally tamed, but Highlanders for the next hundred years and more would make their presence felt on other frontiers, the frontiers of the empire that had conquered them, especially in the forests of North America. And that's where the trail will take us next time on the Frontier Partisans podcast. I want to thank you all for joining me at the campfire for the Frontier Partisans podcast. And I uh, want to give a, a shout out to our my first two patrons on our new Patreon page, uh, David Rolson and Rick Schwartfager. Uh, your support's much appreciated. The link to the Patreon page is, um, is in the show notes. And uh, patrons are uh, eligible for special podcasts, um, other kinds of communications with, uh, with Frontier Partisans headquarters, uh, <laughs> and, uh, and some opportunities for, to, uh, to win some plunder, um, which will all be, uh, announced in the, in the coming weeks. So, uh, 
If, uh, if you enjoy what you hear here and appreciate what you read on the blog, um, the support uh, through Patreon is greatly appreciated. And uh, most of all, I just appreciate you all being uh, along on this journey. And uh, we'll see you down the trail. <laughs>